Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Vet Chat. And today we're going to be tackling quite a, a big and important topic and, and certainly something that, to me, has proved a challenge to get my head around as a topic. And I think it's important that we familiarise ourselves with, with new topics. Uh, but diversity is, is something that we, we all probably have some preconceptions and ideas as to what we know about it, but we actually don't realize what we don't know about diversity uh, across uh, our professional life and our personal life. Now, of course, uh, it's been brought very much to the fore in recent events with with the, the killing of George Floyd in America. But of course, that is only one small microcosm of the world and one small example um, of of failings of modern society. So I'm delighted today uh, to be joined by current BVA president, Daniela Dos Santos, who, of course, her main theme for her presidential year is diversity within the veterinary profession. And we are sworn that our next guest who comes to us uh, very specially is to be introduced as following. Phoebe Vet, co-founder of BVEDS, which is the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society. So, Guys, thanks so much for joining us. I wonder if you could both just take a couple of seconds to to introduce yourselves a little bit, but also to sort of tell people what what diversity is to you and what that actually means. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, so my name's Thebe. I'm, I'm a dairy vet um, in the southwest, um, but I'm also the co-founder of the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society. Um, and really, it's to to support those uh, from marginalised groups. Um, and to promote uh, diversity in the profession. So, so it's a really interesting question, Ben, uh, about what does diversity mean? So really, it means difference. And, and really, there are three dimensions to diversity. So it's what you're born with. So it can be things like sex, race, family culture, um, family role. It can be what you evolve to become. So your gender preferences, relationships, lifestyle, and also your experiences. So things like where you went to school, um, if you had siblings or not, basically what imprints cool. into your and, life. And what about you, Daniela? Um, I would just follow up on, on what Thebe says. It is about the differences between us. And I guess my per- my own personal reflection, you know, having having vet diversity as my theme shows you that I'm very passionate about it. And it, there is so much richness to come from the differences between us. And yet we're still in a society where many people see different differences as a threat or If you point out that our differences mean that you may have had an advantage over someone else, they they also see that as an attack or as a threat when much of the time it's just a fact of the matter and it doesn't detract from your own experiences, but others haven't started from the same place. So I I think diversity is a brilliant thing and it's something that we should be embracing. And certainly, Thebe, you know, there are... There are many reasons for this, you know, even even for those who really want to be quite harsh about it, even business reasons for embracing diversity. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So when 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 somebody or an organisation wants to embrace diversity, there are probably sort of three motivating factors. Um, The first one could be the business case, for example, um, and diverse organisations perform better, have high employee satisfaction and retention, better financial returns and have more innovation. Um, so, for example, there are plenty of papers that have shown that diverse teams have a 33% better financial return. Um, and it's not just the diversity, but the inclusivity. So making people feel like they are part of a team. The um, other case can be a moral case. So it's part of being um, fair, 
making sure that organisations are rep representative to society and ultimately the right thing to do for a better society. I suppose the final motivation or requirement is the Equality Act that became law in 2010. So it protects all people from discrimination, harassment, and there are nine protected characteristics which are under the Equality Act. Of course, Act. there's a legal aspect here, but I really strongly feel that we should be you know, aiming for far above a legal requirement. And I'd, I would actually say that in the profession, we even fail to meet um, the Equality Act in, in, in many, many cases. I don't know if you agree, Thieb. Uh, I think there's plenty of examples of where we have we have failed sometimes. Um, some places have failed the Equality Act. You know, it's interesting Act. you both talk about the Equality Act. And I dare say the Equality Act is something that the vast majority of people maybe don't even know exists. Um, you know, sort of in terms of any depth and detailed knowledge, you know, some people might know that, you know, that there is an Equality Act and that's sort of where their knowledge and understanding of that means. But in terms of on a, you know, in, in often small businesses, how does actually, how can you go about meeting equality requirements? So um, I would actually, I would actually challenge that. I would say that most of, of society are aware of the basics of, of the Equality Act. I think, um, you know, in terms of let, let's just make it as basic as possible, looking at equal and fair pay. And, mm. and most people know that's a fact. But the problem is it doesn't happen. And there's a subset of society mm. that don't accept it doesn't happen. So and, and I think I think if we look at our own profession, I, I think this this aspect of the Equality Act will come in throughout this discussion. But, you know, we've generally said diversity is a good thing. Right. We, we, we're saying that there are benefits and that we should embrace it and and and, it, and it's a good thing for everybody. But we are not a diverse profession. So we're starting this conversation from from um, on a back foot and with many members of our profession not accepting that there is a problem. You know, we are a profession that is only is 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 about 97% white. Now that in comparison with you know the the, the national um, population is completely out of kilter. When we look at, at the gender split in our in our profession, um, in in the workforce we've we've passed the 50-50 mark and the student population is heading towards 80% female. And if you look at our education levels, 24% of uh, vets were privately educated between the ages of 11 and 16, compared to a national average of about six and a half percent. So you can see from a diversity perspective, we're already way behind. Um, and I strongly believe that this is due to barriers. And in some cases, the lack of willingness from, from people to understand that there's a problem. Thieb, I don't know what you think about barriers just to entry to our profession. Exactly. I think what we what we're not getting is the full choice of talent out there. And what we're saying mm -hmm. is only people that come from certain backgrounds at the moment are good enough for vet school, which is which is a problem. So there are barriers and it all starts from children aspiring to be a vet to children achieving the grades mm -hmm. or financially being able to get the experience required to get become a vet to children actually attending vet school and and at every level there are different barriers and i look at it certainly some of the best vets i know in terms of their their clinical capabilities but all their also their ability to communicate are you know they, they would be quite happy to say that they got nowhere near the assumed required grades to get into vet school because it's it's sort of perceived as this you have to be mm -hmm. a high-flying academic now of course you need to be intelligent and have a modicum of common sense but but I, I wonder actually if that you know you have to be a high-flying academic is is a a big barrier to to entry from people from 
a wider and broader spectrum. I think it's an example of systemic barriers, which are very well documented when you look at STEM subjects. So there's something called the Aspires Project, which has tracked children um, as they've grown up to see how they felt in, in relation to pursuing careers in, in STEM subjects. Um, and unfortunately, STEM subjects are still seen as elite subjects. Um, I think physics is, is one of the worst, but chemistry comes close. Um, and so automatically, because we are a STEM subject in schools, there is already this, oh, no, but it's really difficult to get in. Don't you think you should think of something else? Um, certainly, I can speak mm. as coming from an inner city comp at the time. You know, no vets had, had been through. They had no idea how to advise me. And so I, you know, it took me five attempts to get into the vet school. And when you when you look at what it actually takes to get into vet school, you know, you need your work experience. That costs money. So you're already putting a barrier there for mm people who would be perfectly capable and then if you look further about you know filling in your personal statements or personal collections those that go to private school will have had the ability for, to have that sort of support that is an advantage that is a privilege and that might probably reflect why they're more successful in their applications and um, you know if you have personal collection connections that you know your dad knows I don't know a local vet or, or something like that you'll find work experience more quickly and certainly I feel very passionately that as a profession, the barriers are so high that we are missing out on excellent children that would make fantastic vets because we just keep putting blockers in their way. I think so. I think, you know, some of the because of the popularity of the course, you, you do feel like are some of these expectations purely there to prevent everybody applying for the course sometimes and I think that's another debate you know whether it should be a straight A subject to get in and should we have six weeks of EMS to, before you apply for vet school but mm -hmm. um, these barriers you know if if it hasn't been if you hadn't had to think twice about it then it wasn't a barrier and and, and that's what we've got to realize mm -hmm. is if you were able to go and see a practice just like that that was a barrier that somebody else might have mm -hmm. had and so we can't assume that we're all equal and therefore getting into vet school is equally easy for everybody and I think that's that's mm -hmm. the assumption and the problem is is vets come from certain backgrounds and they only mix with people that are very similar so it's very difficult to see something that we don't face. Privilege, Privilege is not saying that you have not have had to, to fight hard it. to get to where you are it's this you haven't had to fight hard on the basis of one particular characteristic and I certainly in recent conversations no. that is something that I found keeps coming through that people misinterpret yes. the use of the word privilege as offensive it's not it's not people don't want to don't, don't want to feel like they've had an easy ride and, and and that's fair enough you know it is hard to study it is hard to get up in the morning and go and see practice which we have to do but the problem is is there's probably somebody who's had to do something more than that to get to the same position or have been held back more because of something that they could not control and and that's where we've got to change you know gender skin color these sort of absolutely. things absolutely and well, i try to have conversations have to with people about barriers and privilege you know for those that haven't faced the financial barrier for example or the um the the educational financial barriers they're often quite taken aback when i suggest that perhaps that is one of the reasons why they got to vet school. And one thing I hear a lot, two, actually two comments I hear a lot that I, uh, I, I would like to address, and Thebe, it'd be great to, to get your, your view on this, is that any attempt to widen, it, to widen access leads to a lowering of sure. standards or competence. And that, to me, totally misses the point we're trying to make. And certainly this week, I even heard a suggestion that um, intelligence is primarily inherited and therefore 
if you're going to private school, it's because you are more intelligent. And those two aspects infuriate me because it completely misses the point. Steve, I don't know if you want to, to make a comment on that. Well, I think recently I was talking to uh, a vet school and in their first year exams, people who got on through an access course came top of the year. So for me, that was all. And, 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 the, and the person who told me that was, was a senior person at university and they couldn't believe it. And for them, it proved to them yep. that it's not, it's not, not, you know, if you get B's in a school that only ever achieves one or two people that pass, compared to a school where you get straight A stars, but actually 90% of people mm. get straight A stars, which mm -hmm. person has, has outperformed what they, what they were given, you know? And, and so we've got to look at it in context. The grades have to be in context of the yeah. environment that that person's in. And by just having straight A stars, we're, we're cutting that out, you know? But somebody who's overachieved in a place that they didn't have the facilities, imagine if you did give them the facilities, which universities can provide. And um, they take it as a suggestion that we think they, they, they've had it easy or haven't worked hard to get into the profession. And, and that's not at all what we are saying. Definitely not. Definitely not. It's one of those things that, again, we need to we need to think about what did we get and, and what did we have benefits of that, you know, actually helped us and, 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 and compared to somebody else. What did they go through? And I think that's about trying to understand other people. My privilege was the it. fact that it's I was white, true. the fact that I'm a, a woman and. Um, my my lack of privilege was my educational background and my financial background. Um, but I think another privilege I had is that there were role models that I could relate to when I looked up. You know, if I if I think back to what I was watching as a child, I was seeing a mixture of white people. Yeah. They were you know, male or female, but they were a mixture of white people. And I think role models really, really matter. What do you think? The totally agree. Totally agree. They, they mm. did a study in um, in the US looking at black kids and their aspirations to do sort of animal sciences uh, and, and what were the biggest barriers and mm -hmm. um you know the the, the first thing that uh, the thing like the thing that the biggest things that came up were financial um, and again we have that problem role models mm -hmm. came up massively so uh, one of the biggest aspirational factors for a young child is seeing role models and following them the other big thing was access to animals um so we look at a lot of communities in in, in the UK minority community, they live in inner city areas. So where are they going to get the, the, the chance to meet animals and get that experience? Culture came up, but I feel with, if you have a strong role models, you get that experience and such like, you can break down the cultural barriers quite quickly, especially when we're having minority, for example, when I talk about the minority side, which is my experience, we're getting second and third generation mm. who understand British culture a lot more. I, I find a lot of people use that as an excuse on why minorities don't apply for vet school but i think that's false um, and actually if we it's more to do with the other three which are role models of financial and the getting the experience in animals i look that. at this from the privileged white male vet background of going actually there are demographics of my client base in clinical practice that have there's a different perception of, of what their animals you know they there's different ramifications of the relationships with their pets and different bits and bobs like that. And, and that's something that I'd seen a couple of times, especially when I was in the Midlands working. And I, I never really had that understanding and grasp because it's not something that I'd ever been exposed yeah. to. So how do we get a better understanding of what animals mean to other cultures? So uh, I, as, I've just reflected on what Thebe said, actually in terms of, of culture as well, because I was just thinking as you were talking, Thebe, that actually perhaps uh, 
perhaps the role model privilege was more than I realized for myself because certainly you know my background when I told my family I wanted to be a vet there was a bit of a why, why do you want to do that why don't you become a doctor or a dentist but I guess because there were those role models on television um, and things like that 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 probably that probably influenced my family's acceptance of my career decision uh, but I'd never thought of it that way actually. Well I remember being given a copy mm. of um, James Herriot and I, I picked it up. I read a couple of pages and I put it down. I said, it's, I don't relate to any of that. And um, I tried. they tried to make me watch some programmes on TV and I didn't. And it wasn't any of that that convinced me to be, mm-hmm. to be a vet. And it was really because, you know, my uncle was a vet. He came over as a refugee to this country and in East London. And I had nothing else to do in my holidays. So I used to spend time with him. And because I got in really well with him and he was my, mm-hmm. he, was, he was a cool uncle, basically. Um, I wanted to be like him. So he was a vet. I want to be a vet. But, you know, without that, would I have been a vet? No, because uh, when I told my parents, they were a bit negative. When I talked to my family, mm-hmm. they were a bit negative. But actually, it was wanting to be like him was the, the, my mm. single biggest thing that why I became a vet. Um, so I, I for Amazing. me, role models is, is huge. Um, and because of me, I've now got a couple of cousins in vet schools and their parents came to me and said, ah, oh, you know, the, they wanted to be a vet. Is that any good? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it and stuff like that. And things are changing. And and so they, they've mm. gone to vet school. A comment then, Ben, about side, understanding your client's with. relationship with their animals, you know, whether they're pets or, or livestock. I just think that comes down to communication. Um, I think that just comes down to how you interact mm. with your clients and not having preconceived idea, ideas of them. Now, there is yeah. one community that I actually think... Um, in many cases, perhaps we as a profession need to reflect on, on how we interact with them. Um, and that's the traveling community. Um, I think that we probably do them a disservice in, in many cases in how we interact with them. And that is uh, many ways because I think we choose not to understand their lifestyle and we choose to prejudge. And actually, if you can communicate with your clients and connect with them, you offer the, those animals a better service. Um, and I think to me, that is a an overriding example of where I think um, we as a profession are failing to embrace uh, diversity in our in our clients. I mean, Thebe, I don't know what you think. Mm-hmm. I, I think that. I think we, we fail on that front. And I feel that we fail when we have a discussion about halal Absolutely. slaughter and pre-stunning. Absolutely. And I think there's a massive misunderstanding about what halal means and what pre-stun means. Absolutely. And actually, when you see vets starting to talk about halal, it then gets into the into the discriminatory sort of side of things. Mm. And if we step back and actually understood what that religion was about and what it means, then actually we could have a much better conversation with those communities. And what we were in danger of is becoming anti-Islamic sort of group because we just tell them what we want and they don't understand our message and we don't understand their message properly. Um, so I think, um, and, 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 you know, I've, I've, uh, I, when I went, when I go to London and yeah. see that, you know, there's big Somali communities and such like, and, you know, with the lack of diversity, where do we learn about these things? Where do we learn about these things? With diversity, are there colleagues we can talk to? Is there is there a service that someone could refer us to? With diversity um, comes that knowledge in, within our profession that we need to understand our clients. If we don't understand the clients we serve, we cannot best protect the welfare of the animals under their care. And so, and, and so, you know, this is a full link, even if there's someone listening who still doesn't want to accept the yeah. human aspect of what we're talking about, there is the animal aspect here. Because if a client doesn't trust you, if you can't communicate with them, welfare is going to be compromised. 
I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and, and also, sometimes we might see things that we feel, um, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that they don't respect animals, but actually we've got to understand on why, why they do what they do. Absolutely, and, and, and potentially educate. Become better because vets, I think, like you say, I, I think the there, there is this, um, you know, there's this quick judgment yeah. sometimes on, on the parts of vets to, to pass judgment on, on cases and animals and people they see in front of them. And if we just took time to talk to people, you'll often find out there's more to it and yep. you may make a real difference. And, and I think going back to your um, yep. non-stun slaughter message, I think that is a really, really important one to, to get across here. Um, as a profession, we must not be talking about halal slaughter. We, we must not. That is not what the debate is about. The debate is about non-stun slaughter, because if we are talking from a veterinary no. professional perspective, that is the animal welfare impact that we are concerned about. And actually, the vast majority of halal meat in this country is pre-stunned. And so I would I would urge anyone listening, be careful with your language because your language matters. Yeah. Yeah. And also, we've got to remember that the sheep industry is kept up by the Muslim population. OK, so 60 percent of sheep and lamb products are consumed by four percent of the population so it's important that we engage that community oh, absolutely and um, talk about just as a side um, you know the bva is currently doing their welfare at slaughter working group and we have had very good um, conversations and relationships with the muslim community throughout um and and you know this it comes back to communication if you want to advance welfare you have yes. to talk to the communities involved and understand where they are coming from but um yeah Steve, you touched exactly. on um Exactly. Inclusion. And, you know, we are all we're talking about rightly that the barriers to access and therefore why we have a lack of diversity in our profession. But the reality is, if we encourage diversity, which I think we should. But at the moment, we almost need to have a health warning to warn people what they are facing in the profession. And we also need to work on inclusion in the profession. There's no point inviting people into our profession if they don't feel like they're welcomed or fit in. Exactly. It's the the cause of having diversity is fine. We want diversity um, for many different reasons. Okay, but if we have a number of different people who do not gel, then they will not. They'll try and avoid things, and and so we we lose we lose cohesion. We have more people leaving. So it's not just the diversity, but the inclusion part that's really really important. And I think that's that, that's the important thing that universities need to get right and practice yep. needs to get right. Um, and again, it's it's what would what do what sort of processes or what sort of things can we do to make sure mm-hmm. that people feel like themselves? So there's an analogy that's always been used. You know, a party, a party where you invite everyone is diversity. A party where you make everyone dance is inclusion. Absolutely, and you know there is really good evidence in the veterinary sector as to why this matters. So you know. Um, BVA did their motivation, satisfaction and retention study that was trying to understand. So so we did the study to try and fix the fact that we have a retention issue or to try and find out why we have a retention issue. And and it was to understand the importance of vets' day-to-day work experiences. So when we talk about lived experiences, um, this is what matters to people. And, you know, in that study, there were sort of three main factors that contributed to people feeling happy in the workplace. One was the sense of being valued and admired. The other one, as you've just alluded to, Thieve, is the sense of fitting in. And so that, you know, you you fit in with those that have been successful before you. And thirdly, role models. Um, and so there's quite clear direction there. When we talk about feeling valued and admired, that again, Thieve, comes back to your 
almost your business case. Because if you have a more diverse range of people, you have a more diverse range of ideas and ways of seeing things. So yeah. I, I don't know if you want to... And, and, the, and the thing about the business case is it only works with the inclusion as well. So if Absolutely. you just have a random 10 people in a room, that's you're just going to perform to a probably worse than if everyone's homogeneous. But yeah. if you actually get those diverse people working together in a way that they feel... Um, in the, they feel empowered or they feel like themselves you then get that 33 percent extra productivity and profit yep i was just gonna say if we don't nurture an inclusive culture we will continue to have a retention problem at the most basic of levels exactly exactly i know and and, and inclusivity can come is, is in so many different ways you know and sometimes mm. they say just paying people more doesn't always keep people at the job uh, it's sometimes other things that you can do that actually are probably going to be more effective than just pay paying more people more and more and more, hoping they're going to stay. Yeah, we did um, a survey with Simply Locums last year about, you know, what sort of what attracts you to a job. Um, and only 20 percent of people was it yeah. to yeah. do with the salary. Um, you know, that that was the deciding factor for, you know, one fifth of people looking at it for 66 yeah. percent. It was the team, and, and that, to me, speaks absolute volumes and something that we've sort of, as a profession for a long time, looked at, look, we just need to get a vet in to fill this role or we just need to get a nurse in to fill this role or a receptionist or whoever it is where the gap is in the practice and it's just getting a person to put a bum on a yeah. seat rather than the right person yeah. to bring the right and, things and pay, to the right Even team. in the BVA study, pay is a hygiene factor. If you have got everything else, you know, as close to right as you can, talking about, you know, people feeling valued, feeling included, feeling like they're making a difference, um, you know, feeling like the culture in the workplace fits with their own values, pay really does become a hygiene factor. And I guess I've experienced that myself. I took a job that meant I was traveling for three hours a day. And yes, I took a pay rise, but the pay rise went in my petrol costs. And I did it because I felt like it was the right culture for me in the practice. Um, and, and that's a really, really important thing for people to take on board. And, you know, we talk about that vets are underpaid. Yes, we are. But are we also aggrieved by our pay because we're not happy in our workplace for other reasons, too? That's it. We, we, we want to find a reason for our unhappiness or, or, or a quick fix for our unhappiness. Mm. And it's always an easy one to pick pay um, if yep. you can't actually nail down what, what it is. And yeah. nine times out of ten, it's probably never to do with that. And I think that's something with anyone when they're looking at a job, we don't necessarily, and, and I think this isn't, I, I dare say this maybe isn't just vets, as humans, we're not particularly brilliant at differentiating between push and pull factors with jobs. Um, you know, what we identify is, well, I'm not happy doing this, so I'm going to go and do something else. But actually don't look at, yeah. you know, why that something else is attractive. And obviously, you know, with that job where you were traveling for a long time, Daniela, that, that you know, very much is something that that was a mm. weighed up opinion going yes i'm traveling for further and yes i'm traveling i'm spending more on my expenses mm -hmm. but but that team makes me feel included mm -hmm. that team makes me feel part of something that is making a difference to ourselves and that's to it. our client that's base it. and that's and, invaluable and, and, well, if i if i bring that back to inclusivity so you know if i if i went to a practice for example and and the practice owner said look we've got quality and diversity policy at this place we've got somebody who's who's there to support quality and diversity um you know asks me you know what's what's 
uh, religion I am or whatever and says, look, or we don't have to go that much detail, but says, oh, we, we like to find out more about you and we're happy to support you in anything you do. That for me makes me feel like I'm part of a team. You know, mm. they care about who I am as an individual rather than I'm part of, I have to fit in into something that they've already created. Mm -hmm. And it's those sort of things that make things inclusive, you know? And I think there's not enough of that going on at the moment. I don't know how many practices actually have any inequality and diversity policy to begin mm. with, let alone all the other things. But, you know, in this day and age when there are, you know, people are looking for the, the right job, make it to feel like you are you, are you at, in a job yep. is really, really important. And presumably that's a very individual thing to the practice. That's not really something that could you come up with, you know, a template that a practice can use for that sort of thing. But presumably that's impacted by the personalities uh, within that building uh, as well. Inclusivity and diversity policies. There are organisations that can work with businesses to create them bespoke ones um it's a bit like a uh, it's a bit like any policy though it's not yeah. written in stone and what it needs to do it needs to evolve so mm -hmm. it's almost important that the the, the practice the practice mm. has got to make the uh, as a whole practice uh, mo the motivation we want to work on inclusivity and diversity only then will it become successful then what it needs it needs somebody to lead it and if it does have a policy this policy has to be able to be monitored Mm -hmm. and evaluated um, so that it is up to date um, and it's also got to be useful it's got to be a working document so it's got to be able to be reproducible on the ground that's what can help a business actually become better in the in, in, in inclusivity and diversity and um, it shouldn't just be a document that we've filled in signed and put it in the box and every year we just sign the bottom to say that somebody's looked at it absolutely that is so important it, it, it can't just be a bit of paper that sits in a box somewhere um, no. it, it has to be a live document and you know if you work in a big organization there is no point having a document that sits at the top of the big organization that doesn't filter down um, no. to the employees no and that gives the employee that that safety that the business does care but then there's mm. also looking after uh, interactions between employees yep. and coming up with systems on how to support employees if they do face problems um, and and, and, and supporting employees who might not know the answer, but seek, are seeking help. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that is a good way to link into talking about discrimination. Sure. Because I think uh, it's what I found, you know, during the conversations that I've had as BVA president is that the concept of inclusivity is completely is, is completely missed. And the concept of equity and equality is also completely missed. And, you know, you often when you start talking about the profession and particularly gender I'll talk about gender because that's you know where I come from when you look at gender you'll often get comments about well you know it's the majority female anyway of course everything's fine and everything's equal and they're treated fairly what about the boys what about the men actually as Steve is alluding to you need to look beyond the numbers and the, and the words on a bit of paper you know we're looking at a profession that is becoming increasingly female and yet we still have discrimination within the profession against women and you know, there was that um, study that the BVA did with the University of Exeter to look at unconscious bias in more detail, specifically about gender. And they spoke to 260 UK based employers, partners and managers. So basically those that were in charge of hiring people and were looking to show if they sh if they demonstrated any bias um, when looking at the record of a male and female vet. And they were asked to review a recent performance evaluation of a vet. It was totally identical. 
um, and they were asked questions to explore their views on, you know, what they felt that that person was capable of, you know, how much would they pay them, how much would they see them as valuable to the other team members, and uh, how strongly would they encourage them to pursue promotions, uh, would they let this vet take on managerial responsibility, so really looking at what competency and value they put on those pe- on, the, on that vet. Now, these forms were identical. The only difference was one was labelled Mark, one was labelled Elizabeth. And so, you know, that was filled in. And then separately, they were asked questions about their thoughts about gender discrimination in the profession. Um, and of those who believe that women no longer face discrimination, they offered Mark a significantly higher salary. They perceived Mark as significantly more competent. They would be more likely to let him take on managerial positions. They would more strongly encourage them to pursue promotions and would advise other vets to look to this vet for a valuable source of knowledge. Now, that is clear cut to me. It was an identical, totally identical piece, a total identical um, uh, sort of person apart from their name. And yet those that didn't think there was a problem still had an unconscious bias. Of those that did think there was a problem, the uh, difference was less, but they did still... um, uh, veer towards paying Mark slightly more. It's really difficult when you then, with faced with something like this, instead of accepting and going, gosh, we really need to fix this, I have had, we've had so much pushback from members of the profession trying to pick holes in it and trying to say, well, it was because of this or because of that. Um, and that's unconscious discrimination that when it's put in front of someone's face, they're so uncomfortable that they try and pick holes in it rather than, rather than accept, hold on a minute, I need to, to think about something. So Steve, I mean, unconscious bias is a real factor, isn't it? It's a real factor, and it's 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 not what we're born with. It's what do we where do we get our ideas from? And and a lot with a lot of the, the problems with biases is we haven't actually encountered it or seen it. It's something that we've just come up with somehow. So, what influences have they come up from? So, is it some things we've read, people we've talked to? things that we've learned from other people um and 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 for example you know um the it could be that when you see a group of uh black men on a street you cross the street okay now you might you don't know them you you know you might not have any uh, black friends yourselves but why is why have you crossed the street and it's things like that the unconscious bias of why why do you why do you do certain things or think certain things with people um, and where does it come from um and, and, the, and the difficulty about it it takes a lot of self-reflection mm. and a lot of thinking about where that's come from and therefore how do you work to break it down sometimes people use unconscious bias training as a quick fix you know i do a bit of unconscious bias training i'm done i'm not racist or sexist anymore and i think that's that's a failure i think understanding that we have got unconscious bias is the first step to trying to work to become more diverse and inclusive in our minds absolutely and you know it sort of links back to the privilege aspect doesn't it that when you're confronted with the fact that that you know you might need to self-reflect it becomes very difficult but all of us have unconscious bias it's just whether or not we are aware of them and, and work to mitigate them exactly that's it we all have it it's just we need to if we want to change we need to understand our own biases and then learn how do we move on from that how do we unlearn them how do we develop as a person to break them if we can and I guess from from that you know that gender discrimination study and because of all the pushback we were still getting trying to pick holes in it uh, we at the BVA ran our discrimination in the profession survey because we knew that what we'd found out was probably just the tip of the iceberg and so we ran um, our our discrimination in the profession survey and it was 
the most successful piece of work we've ever done in terms of engagement. Um, and we started with one where we just opened up and said, if you have experienced discrimination of any sort, talk to us, you know, tell us your experiences. And um, I just want to thank everyone who, who filled that in. I did, I did read them all. Um, and I am honoured that people trusted me enough to share their experiences with me. Um, but even still, there were still those in the profession that, um, that accused us of, you know, following an agenda and that it was a biased piece of work, which actually, you know, on reflection, it, it, it could well have been because we were specifically seeking out people who had experienced um, or witnessed discrimination. So we, we set up another one where we said, OK, have you experienced um, or witnessed discrimination? Yes or no. Um, if yes, give us some more information. And actually, the results from both were very, very similar. So 24% of the veterinary profession have experienced or witnessed discrimination within the last 12 months. So this was released last year. So it's slightly update now. So that's 24% in 12 months. That is a huge number that we as a profession really need to reflect on, particularly when we we think we're inclusive. Uh, you know, that there, there is something wrong there. And then even more interestingly, unsurprisingly, the most common characteristic that um, that people reported being discriminated on the basis of was gender. Um, that was 44%. But second was race or ethnicity at 27%. Now, when we are a 97% white profession and 27% of the reports we are getting are, are based on race or ethnicity, we are failing. There is a real problem there. And um, see, this, you know, I cannot, this is not my lived experience. So uh, I, I'd like to hand over no, to you I if think, that's okay. So I, I just want to go back to what discrimination actually mm -hmm. means. And um, there's sort of two, there's sort of direct discrimination and indirect discrimination. So indirect means an organisation puts a rule or a policy which can impact somebody based on a protected characteristic. Um, so, you know, the way that people um, um, put out adverts for jobs and, and things like that. Um, but direct discrimination simply means treat, mistreating some, treating one person worse than another person based on a protected characteristic. So it's quite, it's quite a, a big one, but then we can break it down into two little areas. So there's the, the macro and the microaggression, which would be one, which would be probably the, the, the common examples. So a macroaggression would be somebody just using foul language at somebody else, uh, uh, using, using, using terms that are, offensive to somebody okay and those are the sort of things that people can easily um identify and see and and recognize so most people in this country would recognize in what you cut what what certain offensive words could be used towards black people and asian people but it's the microaggressions that are still discriminatory but happen daily and are probably the biggest um, taxing thing on a person's day-to-day -day life. So you might think, well, what's what's a microaggression? So something that I got, I get asked commonly is, where do you come from? Okay, I got it asked. It, I got it asked in a big practice up in Yorkshire. Um, I got it. I, I get it asked on farms. I get it asked by other vets. And the problem is, is if I suddenly say, well. I, I'm, I'm from Edinburgh, you know, that's where I was born. Um, people don't stop at that. Then people say, well, where are you really from? But no, but where are your parents from? But where's your heritage? Now, by doing that, you're othering me and you're making me feel like I don't belong here when all my life I've been born and bred in this country. Um, but that wouldn't happen to somebody with white skin. It only happens to people with 
brown or black skin. So that is discrimination. But it, it's, it's not being somebody shouting at me using offensive terms, but that's constantly making me feel like I don't belong. That simple question, where are you really from? Now, there are loads of other sort of, you know, comments that can be made um, and, 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 and things like that, which they might seem harmless if you wrote it on a piece of paper, but it's the way, it's the person who gets asked the question and the number of times they get asked it, it then becomes a form of discrimination. And if you think about ethnic minorities, you could ask virtually all of them, and I bet you they'd get asked it. And, and, and that's the sort of thing that needs to be tackled to make us a more inclusive environment. And, and I think the importance in what you're saying is language. Um, and uh, and yeah. language is so powerful. And I often end up getting into circular conversations with with people about language and its intent. People who, who will say to me, well, I never intended to be offensive. Well, well that's you know, that might be true, but if you are being told that that language is inappropriate, reflect on it. Yeah. And this, we keep saying this word, don't we, Thieb? Reflect. We need to all be more, yes. more self-reflective about how our actions impact on people. That's it, exactly. Like, I think the big thing is we, we all make mistakes mm -hmm. and we've all, we've all done things that maybe, you know, we shouldn't be doing. But if someone, if the, the thing is, if you're not sure, mm -hmm. ask. The other thing is, if someone tells you, then mm -hmm. learn from it. Okay. And, and, and the final thing is to educate yes. yourself. You know, if you've ever heard, well, someone's mentioned that that might be right, what do I do? The mm -hmm. internet is fine. It's, there's plenty of materials. So I don't think in this day and age, people can, can, let, can claim ignorance or, or being unaware because, you know, if, if it's the first point that it doesn't seem right, it's time to check you check yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it comes down to education, you know. So I, I was just looking back in terms of what the um, what the demographics of experiencing discrimination was in our survey, and you know, um, twenty six percent was um, down to race. Um, younger vets were more likely to have experienced discrimination, and female vets. So I guess. For us on this podcast, the, we can talk about race and gender. And actually, it shouldn't yeah. be my responsibility to educate someone about sexism, um, just like it shouldn't be your responsibility to educate someone about racism. Well, for example, so, you know, did I, did I bring up any discrimination that went on when I was at university? Did I bring up any discrimination that I was getting for the first seven years of clinical practice? No. Why? Because I felt that I had to you know keep it in myself and just perform and just be the best pass my vet school degree and then pass my um exams so it was only when i felt comfortable in my career that i felt that i could actually talk about me being me the other problem with me trying to talk out is if i said i uh, someone has been racist to me what would be the feedback from my profession and my colleagues and the fear of being felt of, of be, basically being labelled as you're being sensitive, you're being uh, woke, you're being you're trying to be too PC, and so it made it goes into your shell again. So, in fact, you know you you've got those figures about discrimination. Think about all those young vets 
okay, who who are who do feel discrimination, who are too mm-hmm. scared to speak yep. up about it. So our figures might be a lot higher than what you found. Absolutely. Right? And just talking about speaking out, when we asked who was responsible for the discrimination, um, it was at 47%, it was a more senior colleague, and sh- closely behind it at 35% was a client. And so if we are not nurturing cultures of inclusivity, then can you imagine, um, and I'm sure Steve, you can probably you probably have examples of this, of being in a situation where a client is responsible for the discrimination and then you take it to a senior to you know a more senior member of staff and they don't support your complaint or fail to respond appropriately or ignore the problem. That is a double whammy for that person involved. Well, it's it's what ended my it's what why I left clinical practice in the end. I, I kept taking it, I kept taking it, I kept taking it. And then when a client refused to have me based on my skin colour and my bosses didn't do anything and in fact sided with the with the farmer, I not only was I distressed and uh, felt isolated, but I you know I started to question my my clinical ability I questioned everything that I had done and it actually was a, a downward spiral for a while uh, based on that and and so it, it, you know it's some if my boss had um, supported me that day that is what being mm-hmm. inclusive is all about it's making me feel like I feel like part of the team and my concerns are important to my mm-hmm. boss you know and I think I've you know when I I've talked to a lot of vets and sometimes I just see the response of I see a lot of vets facing discrimination, but because they're bosses, they feel their bosses will not support them. They hide mm. it in. And I do feel like it's such a shame that, you know, we've got these young vets there who are going through this at the moment who don't feel like they can speak up because they feel like the bosses are not either aware or understand how to support them. Absolutely. That that is a real problem. And I guess it's probably mm. worth I mean, just mentioning at this point that BVA are doing their Good Workplace Working Group position, who Issa sits on, who's co-founder of BVEDS as well. And there is a sec, you know, the whole premise of, of the document um, is an overarching principle on how workplaces can be good places to work. So how veterinary workplaces can be good places to work. Um, and there is a big thing about sure. culture change in there and, and assessing your culture. And I think we have to acknowledge that when we say culture, not all workplaces will be suitable for every personality, you know, um, but there is a whole section in there about diversity and inclusion beyond just the gender and race, you know, because there is the disability aspect, there's the sexuality aspect, there's there's all sorts of aspects that you and I, Thieb, are not, you know, we're not uh, in a place to discuss. No. But I would urge people, um, Issa has been a brilliant contributor to that group. And, and once that position is launched, if there are any employers in particular listening that want some guidance in, in terms of what we're talking about in culture and inclusion, um, it's a good starting point there that will direct you to good uh, resources as well. Sure. Yeah. And I would also recommend um, if people are thinking about sort of workplace culture and assessing, um, if you Google cultural intelligence, for example, um, that's all about looking at workplaces and it, and there are lots of different steps to go around um, cultural intelligence, for example, uh, which has recently been popping up uh, which i found quite interesting no absolutely and the other thing that we're we're currently doing at bved is uh, we're producing guidance on race and uh, ethnicity for the veterinary profession Um, so really it'll be a sort of a guidebook to help um, people understand a little bit more about it and ways to support students and and vets Um, but it will be uh, race and ethnicity sort of focused at the moment so no i think i think there is one thing that we perhaps haven't covered because 
Um, having had these conversations before, one thing that always seems to come up when you either talk about diversity, inclusion or discrimination, it's, it's, it's something that someone always says is, what about the white boys? Always. When we talk about gender, there is an implication that the gender split is the way it is because there is discrimination against boys. And I, I think I'd like to get your reflections on, on, on my take on this. The percentage, sure. uh, so the gender split that apply to the profession is the gender split that get into the profession. Um, and so there is not an active discrimination there. And I, I think actually that perhaps the right question we should be asking is what about the working class boys? Because um, those, yeah. those boys that have the privilege or the advantage of a private education or supportive parents may well make, are making the decision not to enter the profession for whatever reason, you know, they're making other decisions. But we're missing yeah. out on working class boys who don't even see yeah. it as an open profession to them. I completely agree. I think, you know, it, it, it's the choice of the student not to apply for. So for a white boy, a middle class boy, what are the barriers of getting into vet school? You know, and the thing is, it's a choice not to apply for vet school rather than mm -hmm. not being able to apply to to get into vet school uh, for financial animal mm -hmm. aspirations, role models, such like that doesn't yep. apply if you're a white middle class boy, a white working class boy. Yes. OK, you might not get the uh, animal um, experience. You might not get the chance to or veterinary experience. You might not have financial. You might you, you will ha you'll have financial problems maybe to to get that experience and even consider veterinary school as an option uh, for some people. So th there are there are barriers to that. That is true. If we look at working class, for example, in this country, forty five percent are mm -hmm. BME. So again, when we think about factors, we've got to remember there's. It's it they're connected. Yes. They're um, intersectional. For a BME working class, and there's two 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 sections there. Or it could be uh, uh, a black woman, mm -hmm. and so there's two intersections there. So uh, a lot of problems. That it's not just when you address one problem, you don't address them uh, by yeah. themselves. There's normally a number of problems that you can address in if you try to work to try and encourage more diversity at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely, and I, I think it just highlights again. What if we go right back to the beginning of this, that there are significant um, societal barriers for entry into into vet school? Yeah, I mean, I think we've obviously covered a, a hell of a lot there for anyone who listens regularly to our, our 20 minute episodes. You, you may notice that this has gone on slightly longer than 20 minutes. And, and that, to me, really symbolises the magnitude of the challenge that, that this presents to us as a, as a profession, but but not just the challenge as an opportunity you know this is a brilliant I, I still stand by the fact that you know the veterinary profession is a brilliant profession I love being a vet um, but there is a lot for us to do and actually people from different avenues of walks of life will bring so much in fact I, I dare say infinitely more to the profession moving forwards and I think for me um, you know some of the the key take homes from this chat is that inclusivity is is so massively important to everybody on every level of every practice in the UK mm -hmm. um, and that you know it's important for us to educate ourselves it's important for us to use that self-education to help educate others and by doing that we can help the profession evolve you know, this is about taking the veterinary profession to the next level 
and improving it for everybody in society. And that is a major responsibility. I guess my closing thoughts would be for, for those of you listening that feel uncomfortable with the conversations we're having, that's good because you should feel uncomfortable with these difficult sorts of conversations. And diversity and inclusion is not about highlighting that a certain demographic have got into the profession more easily. This is just highlighting that there's a challenge here that we need to address. And we all have a role to play, to listen, to educate ourselves and to play a part in making this a better profession. And I mean everyone, employee, employer, clinical, non-clinical, student, qualified vet, it's everybody's responsibility to get involved in this, to educate, listen and play your part. Yeah, I'd like to say, you know, I agree with both of you. And, um, you know, I'm, I made the right choice coming into the profession. You know, I enjoy what I do. Um, I'm lucky to have found, you know, I, I'm passionate about dairy cows. I'm so glad that I can deal with them every day of the week. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm living the dream on that side of things. And what I think to myself is, well, if I'm enjoying it, I want others to enjoy it just as much as me. And, um, you know, if I can get more people in, it's like having a party. You know, you want, you want, you want lots of people, a variety of people. Um, and I want, uh, I want to share what I've got and I want to learn from others. And so, you know, we can, we can make that this, this, this profession can be that. And it's great that it's small enough that we can all be one family and we can actually get to know all each other. So, you know, um, if we, if we understand ourselves a bit more, um, and therefore, and then look and look at ways to change and improve ourselves. Then we can work on improving the, the profession, and therefore having something that's strong in every avenue. You know, um, and that will only that will only be a good thing. Absolutely. And three years ago, this conversation wasn't being had. Um, and I don't think, Thebe, that you and I ever thought we would be having these sorts of conversations on a mm. on a public forum. Ne- um, never thought so. And, and so, please, everybody, <laughs> listen reflect and do your part to educate yourself and make the profession better for everybody guys thank you so much i think you know it is it's testament to how far we've come as a profession that we're having these conversations but it's also then the responsibility now that we take these conversations and convert them into action um and i think you know thank you for everything you're doing you know bved bva every organization that is striving for change in their own microcosm of the veterinary profession and the wider world they these roles come with massive responsibility um but they also come with the the carrot of of massive positive change and it's a blessing to be part of a profession that at the moment is is really striving to make positive steps so thank you both for everything you're doing good luck with everything it's great to be included in in part of that journey and to have the responsibility of taking that on thanks thanks, guys um, yeah thank you both very much could i just say that is the best conversation we've ever had about this sort of thing and uh, thank you so much for organizing it ben